Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience during the Watergate case. Uh, I'm also the wearer of hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is special for our guest, Roger McNamee. Uh, It is a very old-fashioned phone to show my level of sophistication in technology compared to his. And uh, so it does show that. It's an old rotary dial. And Victor, I know you've never used such a phone. And if I gave you one, you might not be able to do it. But... You're what does pro- your generation have to say? You're probably right. Uh, my generation is defined by social media. We use platforms like Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, and others so frequently that social media has become our language. In some cases, using social media has its benefits, whether it be for organizing big rallies or raising awareness about a particular issue. But what's been apparent throughout the last several years is the extent to which social media can also be used as a vehicle for toxicity, misinformation, outright lies. That reality has become even starker following Facebook whistleblower Frances Hagen, who said, and I'm going to quote her, the result of Facebook has been more division, more harm, more lies, more threats, and more combat. Today, we are joined by Roger McNamee, the perfect guest to talk about the threat that Facebook poses to our society today and what reforms are possible. Roger has been a Silicon Valley investor for over 35 years. He co-founded successful funds in venture, crossover, and private equity, was an early investor in Facebook, and served as an advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. He also was the author of a New York Times bestselling book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. We are so delighted to have him with us today, and thank you, Roger, for joining us today. Jill, Victor, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to get to the current state of Facebook and the solution to problems identified by Francis Hagen. Your advice to me and others about whether to stop using Facebook, but I'd like Victor to start first with some context that we think we need for some questions about Facebook's founding. Yeah, so Facebook launched in 2004, and I'm wondering if you can give our audience a sense of some of the biggest social media sites at that time, and perhaps what, perhaps what the biggest one was. Well, so in 2004, when Bark started up, people had been trying to make social media work at that point for half a dozen years. And there were a series of barriers, and uh, the first company to really break through the barriers technically was MySpace. And MySpace went to tens of millions of active users, but it did so with an underlying design that had performance problems as you added users. Effectively, it allowed users to be their own art designers, and that placed a a weight on the processing because you had to send the images over the phone line every time you, you used it. And it slowed everything down to the point where the system became nearly unusable. But more important than that, there was no attempt at MySpace to protect the users from harm. And so it became a locus for child predators and other 
things that, you know, obviously made the site really unattractive. So when Facebook came along, MySpace was still on its way up, but Facebook had a better idea. And was that better idea to counter the problems with MySpace at the time? Well, when I met Mark Zuckerberg in 2006, it was just before Facebook introduced the, the, the whole news feed. Mm-hmm. So the thing that we think of as Facebook today didn't yet exist. He was 22 years old. The company was about two years old. And they had 9 million users who basically all they could do was share their location, their relationship status, and a photograph with friends. But Mark did two things that MySpace didn't do that made all the difference in the world. The first was he required you to use your school email account. So it was only available to college and high school students, but only through their school email address. And the effect of that was to authenticate identity. Each person could only be one person. And you knew who they were. That was a very, very good thing from a security point of view. The second thing he did was that he said, you could control who could see your data. That was a form of privacy. And I was far too old to be a user of MySpace. I was not in school, so I didn't have a school email account. But I was convinced from the first day I met him, from actually before that, that Facebook was going to be the dominant player in social media. And it was really going to be the company that created that marketplace. Because I was convinced that authenticated identity and privacy protections were essential to making social media safe. All I can say is, wow, (laughs) that is so fascinating. And um, I, of course, am of an age where I definitely couldn't have signed up for any of that. Um, I didn't even have an email probably back at that stage. Um, But when Facebook Facebook first launched, um, you became an investor pretty early on. And did you see any problems with the software? So, so Jill, it's a great question. When I first got involved, it was actually as an advisor to Mark. I was introduced by one of the senior executives because the company was facing what was described to me as an existential challenge. Mm-hmm. And Mark needed to speak to somebody who was really experienced in the tech industry, would be able to keep their mouth shut, and was able to give him an honest set of ideas as opposed to somebody who was biased. But I was not told what the problem was. So the first day I met Mark, again, imagine he walks into my office and he looked just like Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, he had, <laughs> you know, he, he had the sandals, he had the skinny jeans, he had the hoodie. He looked just like Mark. He same sits haircut? Down. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the same. And he, sits, he sits down. And we had in my office, because Elevation Partners was started by a group of us at the intersection of technology and media, we had a, a, one of our conferences was set up as a living room. So we sat on comfy chairs about, you know, our knees were probably three feet apart. And I said, Mark, before you even start, I need to tell you why I'm doing this, because I think you have created the I think you've broken the code and you're going to have the first successful social media company. But I said, what worries me? You know, you've got privacy, right? You've got identity, right? But what worries me is I think that either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer 
a billion dollars to buy Facebook. And everybody you know is going to tell you to take the money. And it's going to be really hard to say no. And I really hope you don't take the money. I really hope you keep it independent because I don't think, it doesn't matter who buys it, this is an idea that exists in your head. And the only way to realize the vision is for you to do it. It takes me about two minutes to go through this presentation. What followed that was about five minutes of dead silence with Mark Zuckerberg going through a series of thinker poses <laughs> as he's trying to decide whether or not he trusts me. And I'm watching this thing in front of me. It was one of the most painful experiences of my entire life because you know that when you're expecting an answer, I mean, I've just laid this really heavy thing on a guy I don't even know. And I'm expecting a response. And here he is. At one level, he's paying me an enormous compliment because he's thinking so hard about what I said. At another level, I'm having to wait without saying anything for minutes. And it, with a, each passing second, it gets more painful. I'm literally digging trenches in the upholstery of this chair I'm sitting in. And I'm ready to scream. And finally, he goes, you're not even going to believe this. And at that point, honest to God, I would have believed anything as long as we could talk. <laughs> and, and he goes, you're not going to believe this, but... The thing you just described, that's why I'm here. That exact thing has happened. Yahoo offered a billion dollars, and everybody knew told him to take the money. And he didn't want to sell the company. He didn't know how to prevent it from happening. And I go, oh, well, I can help with that. And so I helped him figure out how to prevent it from happening. It literally, the whole meeting took half an hour. But it changed his life because the company remained independent. And so all of a sudden, he needed to rebuild his management team. And all the people on the inside wanted to sell the company, so he couldn't go to them. His board of directors wanted to sell the company. He couldn't go to them. He needed somebody else. So he went to me. And I helped him rebuild the management team. And it took, wow. about, it took about three years. And the reality was there were only a few key positions I needed to help with. The president, the chief financial officer, and then thinking about what sorts of people he should have for other positions and thinking about strategy. And it was a lovely relationship. We met roughly once a week for three years. And, you know, the first two years, it was quite religious. The last year, once Sheryl Sandberg came in, his need for me went way down. And so I just gradually withdrew. And that was the appropriate thing to do. And then after that, I just watched from the sidelines. So from 2009 on, I was a spectator. So and my understanding is that you helped him to find Sheryl. Oh, more than that. I introduced her to him and and, and brokered the... The, her going there. And, and you know, it, I knew Cheryl really well. She'd introduced me to my business partner, Bono. And, you know, and Cheryl's sister was married to one of my partners. So, oh. I mean, it was practically a family thing, right? I knew Cheryl super, super yeah. well. And, and, you know, I had advised her, I'd helped her get into Google. Uh, and then when she came to me and said she was thinking of taking a job at the Washington Post, I went, are you crazy? You're at Google. You're driving them out of business. What are you going to do? You're going to go and become the captain of the Titanic after you hit the iceberg? That's not going to work. And so I said, well, look, if you're going to do that, you ought to at least go look at Facebook. And what I didn't realize, I always assumed that Mark and Cheryl would cancel out each other's weaknesses and reinforce each other's strengths. Mm. But it didn't actually work out that way. I mean, in, in a way, it did work out that way because they created more wealth in a shorter period of time than just about anybody on earth. But they, you know, they didn't recognize both either the opportunity or the requirement for people who have power to use it wisely, to respect 
the rights of those affected by what they do and to be good citizens, to, you know, appreciate that there are certain things that you're allowed to do in business that produce predictably bad outcomes. And when I went to them in 2016, nine days before the election, it was because I'd been seeing things going on that year that did not compute. It just, it looked to me that there was something about the algorithms, the business model, and the culture of Facebook that allowed bad actors to harm innocent people. And I'd seen it in civil rights relative to Black Lives Matter and relative to housing. And I saw it in democracy relative to the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom. So all those things happened between January and August of 2016. And then we got the news about Paul Manafort's connection to Russia. And that's when I freaked out and realized I needed to reach out to Mark and Cheryl. And what I did was I drafted an opinion piece, an op-ed for the Recode blog. They, you know, because I went to Recode, I went to all these journalists and said, are you seeing this? Because this is really scary. And nobody was seeing it. Nobody was particularly interesting. But Recode asked me to write an op-ed. So I started writing it. Instead of publishing it, I sent it to Mark and Cheryl. And so I sent it October 30th of 2016. And I'm thinking, hey, I used to be their mentor. I'm their friend. We'll have a good conversation. I'll say, hey, look, we've got a real problem here. And they will make the changes they need to make to protect democracy and to protect civil rights. Because after all, undermining democracy and undermining civil rights is actually bad for business. So I figured, of course, they'll do it. And three months later, it was really clear that no, they were not going to do anything. That they, their vision was different, that they did not view it as their responsibility. And the sad thing about this is they're not alone. In American business today, for the most part, we say to them, focus only on maximizing shareholder value. Don't worry about anything else. Nothing else is your responsibility. And if all you do is focus on one thing, that means you're going to Ignore everything else, and it effectively excuses all manner of sins because of that focus on the one thing. Okay, so we're going to delve more into that, but I still want to go back to my original question, which was when it first launched um, and when you first, or maybe even when you first got involved, which was two years after the launch, did you see any problems with the... No. Um, Software, the algorithms? No, no, or? no, no, no. no. It, so keep in mind, at the beginning, there weren't any algorithms. At the beginning, all they did was everything was in reverse chronological order. So most recent at the top, going back mm -hmm. to oldest. And it was just stuff shared by people you were actually really close to. So the issues that we have today, those didn't really emerge until 2013. In those days, it was really simple. And not only did I not see any problems, I thought this was going to be enormously successful, which in my mind meant they could potentially reach 100 million active users in English-speaking countries. And I thought that would have been a great win. And I, that's my notion of how big it was going to get. And Mark started to tell me in, I want to say it was probably 2008, that his goal was to get to a billion users. I'm going, Mark, that's a terrible idea. If you go for a billion users, I mean, that's one in seven people living in the world. It's maybe one in three people around the internet. And 
In order to do that, you're either going to have to do business in territories or do business under terms and conditions that are going to lead to a bad outcome, things you shouldn't want to do. And so his insistence on focusing on maximizing the reach of the product is one of the reasons why I thought maybe I was no longer a good fit. As and that was in what year? Well, I, I stopped in 2009. The first conversation was in 2008. And I spent some time trying to talk him out of it unsuccessfully and uh, then thought, you know, I've reached my sell-by date. You know, this is his company, not mine. And uh, it, at that point, it still never occurred to me he was going to do harm. And, you know, maybe shame on me because there were signs elsewhere. There was a company called Zynga that made Farmville. It was a game that you played on Facebook that they played a lot of tricks using Facebook's ad tools and using Facebook's architecture to first addict people and then to basically suck money out of them. And that was the first time that you had an example of how Facebook could be used for bad outcomes. But it was farming. It was not undermining democracy. It wasn't undermining public health. So I didn't view it as catastrophic. And besides, Facebook cracked down on them. So you know, let's move to there, 2016. There were little signs, Jill. Jill, there okay. were little signs yeah. along the way. But I did not interpret them at that time in a way that would have led me to the conclusions I ultimately came to. It really wasn't until some window between 2013 and 2016 when it would have been possible to see it, and I just didn't happen to see it. Okay, and then we get to 2016 when it became pretty obvious that it was pivotal time for Facebook and the nation because Facebook amplified Russian misinformation. Well, I don't even think that was the worst thing they did, Joe. I think the okay. worst thing that they did. Tell me the worst. The worst thing that they, yeah. So the Russian thing was terrible, and there's no excuse for it. And you and I both know that it, when we were little children, if a company had aided the Russians in undermining an American <laughs> election, those people would have been sent to the electric chair. No questions asked. Probably would have happened in three months, right? I mean, you know, it would, it, the trial would have lasted mm -hmm. for 15 minutes. Uh, I mean, it's a different time. But to me, the real problem was that that Steve Bannon created a company called Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. And Cambridge Analytica was basically full of baloney. I mean, they really were. The, the <laughs> amount of nonsense per square inch there was staggering. But they did a piece of brute force work on behalf of Trump that really mattered. They married 30 million U.S. voter files to their Facebook IDs. So keep in mind, there are 200 million people who are eligible to vote in the United States and 100 and something million vote in an actual election. So they married ballpark, you know, 25 or 30 percent of the likely voters mm -hmm. to their Facebook IDs, creating the largest custom audience possible in politics. And the reason it matters is that it allowed them to use Facebook to suppress votes in communities of interest to them. They focused on the black community, on suburban white women, and on young people. And they were magnificently successful. And the voter suppression was the key thing. I mean, they pretended like they could predict people's 
psychographics and all this other nonsense, none of which, as far as I can tell, mattered. But they were, they allowed a, a essentially a weaponization of Facebook in, that was totally asymmetric because the Clinton campaign did not take any help from Facebook. Trump took a lot of help from Facebook. And so Facebook wanted to see if this would work because obviously they perceived it as being great for their business. And they aided and abetted in this very forcefully. And it was just successful enough to help Trump win the election. Because if you look, if you look at the votes of people of color, white suburban women, and younger voters in the places that Trump had to win, mm -hmm. it's uncanny. With the exception of Pennsylvania, these big dips you know, in people of color. And in some of the key places, white suburban women, and all over the country, young people. Did Cambridge Analytica outsmart Facebook, or was no. Facebook completely no, no. aware of what no. they were doing? Totally aware of it. Facebook, I mean, they, they, you know, Facebook hired the key guy from Cambridge Analytica. Now, of course, they knew what they were doing. The Cambridge Analytica, they're a bunch of, they, you know, they were not brilliant. They were not clever. They were scammers. And but they were scammers who aligned themselves with a pile of money. You know, Robert Mercer and Steve Bannon and people who wanted to shift the American political system far to the right. Mm -hmm. And the Cambridge Analytica people were just, you know, were willing stooges. If it weren't them, it would have been somebody else. And, you know, there were lots of people trying to do that. There's so much scamming in the political consulting world today that, you know, it's, there's just the money in American politics is so negative and so dangerous. And that's, this is just one example of it. But what it was was a revolutionary version of it because they tried something that nobody had ever tried before. And now you, you, Facebook couldn't have done it in 2012, okay? It required some changes in what Facebook did to its ad tools that took place in 2013. So 2016 was the first time, and it was like a mm. sneak attack. And you brought to their attention, you, you wrote this op-ed and shared it with them. What was their response? So I, I didn't know about Cambridge Analytica. All I knew yeah. was I'm seeing what happened in Brexit, and I'm going, your ad tools are being used to undermine democracy. And then Black Lives Matter and the housing thing, it's really obvious people's mm -hmm. civil rights were being undermined because the ad tools allowed you to discriminate. And I went to them and said, guys, there's a moral problem here and there's a business problem. The moral problem is you do not want to be undermining civil rights and, and democracy. But you're in a trust business. If people think that you're undermining democracy and civil rights, that's going to be bad for you too. So I really think that you need to change the business model, the culture, and the algorithms to you know, clean the problem up. And their response was, Roger, we've already taken care of it. I mean, it's the same thing you've heard a million times since then. You know, oh, my gosh, we'll, oh, we'll do better. And, uh, but in my case, they, re they really said, they said two things. One, the things you're talking about are isolated, and we fix them all. But we value your input because we have a long relationship with you. So we're going to have one of our core deputies work with you to see if there's a real problem. And, of course, he strung it out as long as he was you know, until he thought I was going to lose interest. What he didn't realize was all I was doing was losing my temper, and I decided to become <laughs> an activist. And uh, so I didn't let it go. Well, and then you founded the Center for Human uh, Technology. Is well, that a result really. of this? So, no, what happened was that 
so in February of 2017, I realized they're not going to do anything. I decided I've got to become an activist. And about a month later, I was co-hosting the technology show on Bloomberg Television. Uh, and the guest that day was a guy named Tristan Harris, who had been the design ethicist at Google. And he'd been on 60 Minutes talking about brain hacking. And I'm going, oh, my God, here's an ally. Here's somebody else who's got the same mission. Now, he's focused on the addiction part of it. And I was focused on how the business model was being used. But I thought these things were compatible. So I called him up after the show. I interviewed him. And I called him up afterwards. And I said, hey, look, uh, you know, do you want to collaborate? And so the first thing we did was, you know, I, uh, we got him into the TED conference. He gave a TED talk. And then we went to Washington, D.C. and met a bunch of members of the Senate, initially Elizabeth Warren and Mark Warner. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, because she was very interested in antitrust, and Mark Warner, because he was the, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee that was investigating the election. And they were the only part of the Senate where the two sides would talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And so that got us started in Washington. And, but Tristan, we wound up through the end of that year consulting with the House Intelligence Committee for their hearings and with dozens of members of Congress. But Tristan wanted to start the Center for Humane Technology because he wanted to focus on changing the design of technology products so they didn't addict people, which is a super important thing to do, but that wasn't what I'm good at. So we parted ways. I helped him get it started and then went my own way. And, uh, you know, the center is, is his baby and, you know, he's done a great job with it. But I, I have focused mostly on policymakers. So members of Congress, members of the Senate, uh, the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and state attorneys general in, you know, three or four states. And so I have, and, and then speaking out. And what happened was that early in this process, in the fall of 2017, I got asked to write a cover story for a policy magazine in Washington called the Washington Monthly, in which I talked about my experience with Facebook and what I thought we ought to do about it. And it happened to land in a couple days after Mark Zuckerberg announced that he was going to fix what was wrong with Facebook as mm. his New Year's resolution, which was interesting because literally the day before, Facebook had said there's nothing to see or nothing to fix. And then he puts out this big thing saying he's going to fix it. And my thing lands a couple days later giving an actual list of what he ought to do to fix it. And that day it came out, a senior Facebook executive, who's now the chief technology officer, put a tweet up that said, I've been at Facebook since 2006, and all I want to know is who the bleep is Roger McNamee. And a wild thing happened because a couple dozen people in the press decided to find out all at once in January of 2018. And so the next thing you know, I'm on TV all over the place, like, you know, CBS This Morning and MSNBC and Bill Maher. And so Tristan's building the Center for Humane Technology, and I'm doing the policy thing. And it's working great. And we have two colleagues, Renee DeResta, who's this genius, who um, is at the Stanford Internet Observatory today, and Sandy Parakilis, who was a Facebook whistleblower who's now at Apple. And the four of us were... We were each doing our own thing, but we're working like crazy. And you know, there are all these great academics who are doing tremendously much more detailed work than us, but we're in silos and their stuff just was not reaching policymakers. And so we were sitting there just waving our arms, just like literally running into rooms with our hair on fire. And uh, uh, it, was, it was an insane time because, you know, 
literally, you couldn't predict what we were going to be doing three days ahead of time, right? And every, everything was changing all the time. You just had to be completely flexible. And we think, wow, we're making all this progress. And then Cambridge Analytica hits in March of 2018. And all of a sudden, that scandal blows up. And we're already known. So all of a sudden, we're helping the press digest this thing, and especially helping Congress. And all of a sudden, I'm getting kind of optimistic. And Penguin says, you got to write a book. So I get the contract to write a book, which comes out in February of 2019, so a year later. And the book triggers a, you know, a, I mean, I was lucky. It got off to a great start. It was a bestseller. It lets me do this giant book tour. I'm pushing all this stuff. Meanwhile, Facebook is just doing what it was doing. Right in 2017, they had ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. 2018, they had uh, terrorism in Christchurch, New Zealand, and in Pittsburgh. Right, 2019, the Brazilian election. I mean, it was they just they kept going as though none of this mattered, and we're looking at this going, "Hello, we got to do something about this. This is <laughs> this is our company. You know, we can't destroy the world." And it's like. I keep thinking the employees are going to rebel, right? I mean, ethnic cleansing. You do not want ethnic cleansing happening on your watch. They didn't care. Well, okay, how about terrorism in New Zealand? They didn't care. How about terrorism in Pittsburgh? Yeah, no, not our problem. And we're sort of looking at it going, wow, this is going to be a lot harder than we thought. And here we are. It's 2021. I've now been at it for five years. And we're pretty much in the same place we were. Now, people know it much better than they did then. And Congress is beginning to turn its wheels. I think Congress but, has finally maybe caught on. Okay, uh, and, but and hang I on, Jill. In between, we've had a, we've had a pandemic, which yes. Facebook made much worse. And we had an insurrection where they helped, to, they helped to radicalize maybe 2 million people into QAnon and then provided the infrastructure for organizing Stop the Steal and the insurrection itself. I mean, it's like things, things have gotten a lot worse. Now... We now have a whistleblower. We have a bunch of things that give us a, more hope. But, wow, it's been, a, it's been a tough five years for America. Uh, I, I will say that for any of our audience who's watched The Social Dilemma, Tristan Harris was one of the main characters in that show, and it was a disturbing show. Um, but I, I want to move back to 2020 because um, four years later, the week before the 2020 election, um, Facebook removed all political-related ads um, the week before Election Day and suspended Russian accounts. I'm, I'm wondering what you think those measures had on the impact on the election. I think it had almost no effect at all, that all the harm had taken place already. So the thing to understand is that Facebook wants, Facebook has a very clear vision of its mission, which is to connect the whole world on one giant network with no internal walls. And it believes that because it is of the same scale as a nation, right, there, there are more active users of Facebook than there are believers in Christianity. There are more you know, it's roughly equivalent to uh, two Chinas, right? So it's really big. And so they look at it like we're a country. You can't tell us what to do. And so in 2018, in response to Cambridge Analytica and the uh, continuing concern about 2016 election, they put forward a proposal saying, well, we're going to make more meaningful social interaction on Facebook to protect democracy. So we're going to downrank 
journalism and uprank friends and family. Well, if you knew anything about the product, that was obviously going to make everything much, much worse. Basically, it was going to make Facebook much more profitable, but it was going to result in far more hate speech, far more disinformation, and far more conspiracy theories, because friends and family are the primary distribution vectors for that. So that was really incredibly obvious. And so when Facebook waited until the last minute in 2020 to do something about election disinformation, it was the same kind of thing where they waited until they'd gotten all the economic benefits of the election and then did something so trivial that it wouldn't piss anybody off. And then the minute the election was over, they shut down the group that was there to protect the election. And so Stop the Steal went bananas after the election because the people, that's this Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, was the head of the group that was responsible for political integrity related to that stuff. And they shut down her group and all the related groups. And they did so immediately after the election. And the result was that election denial ran rampant on Facebook, and they built a huge business supporting things like Stop the Steal and all the scams that built up around it. Mm -hmm. And again, in American industry, we operate with very few rules these days and almost no enforcement of the rules that exist. And if we're going to let companies operate that way, you have to expect that some of them are going to abuse it. And if you tell them that their only job is to maximize shareholder value, they're going to have a pretty good argument for why they did it. And that's really what we're dealing with here, right? I mean, this is way bigger problem than just Facebook. Facebook right now, because Facebook did something we'd never had before. One network, three billion people, no walls. The effect of that is that ideas that previously were confined to the edges of the conversation had access to the mainstream. The business model, because it was built around attention, meant that Facebook would use algorithms to amplify things that grab people's attention. And hate speech, conspiracy theories, and disinformation were at the top of that list because it was really effective. And so the algorithms would naturally promote that stuff because people reacted to it. And in doing that, they took things like white supremacy, anti-vax from the edges of society and pushed them into the mainstream. And that was a great business for them. Now, you know, they could have stopped it. They stopped pornography early on and they could have stopped scams. But for business reasons, they said, well, there's nobody here to tell us not to do scams. There's nobody watching. And it's a great business because Facebook did something that had never happened in marketing before. They created a product that gave them access to the inner self for their users. Because all your friends and family were on there, people shared things they'd never shared before. And the result of which was Facebook got access to stuff that people would normally hide. And that stuff was valuable to all marketers, but it was gold to scammers. Because if you know what people's vulnerabilities are, 
you can exploit them. And Facebook gave scammers a way to do that. And so you see things like scams against the elderly, scams against veterans and their families. You see scams against active duty military. You see all kinds of scams against teenage girls, like on Instagram. You see human trafficking, trade in antiquities, trade in exotic animals that are protected by, by statute. And all that stuff happens on Facebook in plain sight. Illegal drugs, weapons. And it's like, hello? I mean, this thing is a crime scene. And it's not the only one. I mean, there are analogous things going on on, on YouTube. And you know, not the whole package, but pieces of it happen on YouTube. Pieces of it happen in Google Search. Pieces of it happen in TikTok. Pieces of it are happening all over the place. And, you know... We don't have an infinite amount of time to get this right because whole generations of people are being harmed by it, particularly we, in Victor's generation. Yeah, and I, and I know Victor wants to ask about um, what happened on January 6th, not just the role Facebook played in causing January 6th or enabling the uh, organizers to organize it, but on what happened as a result to Donald Trump's account. So, Victor, do you want to ask a question about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't until January 7th after what happened on January 6th when Facebook decided to take action against Donald Trump. Um, they released a statement saying that we believe the risks of allowing the president to continue to use our service during this period are simply too great. Therefore, we are extending the block we have placed on his Facebook and Instagram accounts indefinitely and for at least the next two weeks until peaceful transfer of power is complete. Um how significant was that for democracy? And do you think that was enough? Sir, I think it was irrelevant. It did nothing. I mean, was it good that they put, took him off? Of course. But was it too late? Obviously. And, you know, the, they still allowed the Stop the Steal people to advertise on Facebook. They allow Trump proxies to advertise on Facebook. Um, and, you know, it's like... No, it, it was hopeless. You know, what Facebook has done is they've, they've, each time that they get in trouble, they find something that sounds like it would be a solution. And with great fanfare, they put it out there. But if you study what they do, each time the thing is incredibly superficial and it's implemented in the shoddiest possible way so that there's almost no benefit. And that pattern's been repeated continuously. And again, I don't think this is because they're bad people, but I do think that they have a different value system. And I don't think we as a country have engaged in the kind of conversation about these competing value systems that you would need to have to protect democracy and protect public health, privacy, and competition. So... We talked a little bit about the algorithm, um, and I think for my generation, Jill's, that's probably the most concerning aspect of Facebook. I, I'm wondering if you think that there's a specific community or age demographic. I know my generation has been significantly impacted by Instagram, especially um, teen girls. There was a report that showed that Instagram is harmful to them, and other studies show that lots of other um, older age people are more susceptible to falling vulnerable to social media's tricks. Um, does everyone become impacted by this? Like, who is most at risk from Facebook and, and 
these algorithms? So, Victor, I, I think it's a, first of all, a great question, and I don't want to pretend like I have a complete answer, but I think there are a few points we can make. One is we've had more than 750,000 people die in the United States of COVID, and if you were to index us to countries that are like us economically, we the number should have peaked around 200,000. So ballpark, half a million people are dead who shouldn't have been dead. Facebook is not the only propagator and amplifier of COVID disinformation, but nobody was more important. Obviously, Fox News played a huge role in this, and other platforms like TikTok did the same thing. But it is a, um, it is just plain true that Facebook did nothing to protect the country against COVID disinformation. It did nothing to protect the country against QAnon, even though they were warned by the FBI. And those deaths are concentrated among older people. But now they're starting to spread out. You're seeing it in every demographic. Obviously, the undermining of democracy disproportionately affects young people because they're the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences of it the longest. The psychological problems caused by platforms like uh, Instagram radically disproportionate impact on young people. But the underlying business model that Facebook uses, what is called surveillance capitalism, is something that Google invented in 2000. And they apply it in a slightly different way. And it's now being adopted throughout the economy. I had two examples in the past week, one related to getting a COVID test at a private COVID testing place, where they said, we need to take your medical history and all your prescriptions. And I said, excuse me, I'm here for a COVID test. You don't need any of that, and you're not entitled to it. No, no, that's our policy. I have to have it. I go, no, no, no. You just want to get it so that you can sell that data in the marketplace. I'm not going to provide it. It, it had to escalate several levels in order to prevent it from happening. Then I want to buy tickets for an event. I go on Ticketmaster. I cannot buy the tickets until I give them my cell phone and they have verified that it's accurate. That is surveillance capitalism, and this is spreading throughout the entire economy. And the thing itself is the equivalent of child labor, because the way surveillance capitalism works is they take, the, essentially every time you do something that touches the digital world, financial transaction, you travel, you use your phone, you use an app, you're on the web, anything you do leaves a little digital footprint. And essentially, all those digital footprints are available for purchase in a third-party marketplace. And so companies throughout the economy are building these huge data sets. And they look at the whole data set to find the patterns in the whole population. Because humans are predictable. We fall into certain behavioral buckets. Then once they've identified the patterns, they then create a model for each of us, which is it's essentially all of our digital activities as a model. And they use that to predict our behavior. And then they use recommendation engines, which we trust. They use those recommendation engines to manipulate our behavior, pers persuading us that this was good for us or that we chose it, which is demonstrably not true. And so you have this situation where it doesn't matter how old you are, you're losing your autonomy. You're losing your right to make your own choices. And Facebook today is the worst offender on that. But there are hundreds of other companies desperate to do the same thing Facebook is doing. And that's going to be a huge problem. All right. So that's where we get into government regulation being needed. But um, I think that's getting closer because of Francis Haugen 
and her expose of the company's wrongdoing, uh, which she went first to the SEC with, then she talked to 60 Minutes and now has testified before Congress. And she has given millions of documents to them. She's made suggestions for reform. Uh, and because her testimony is based on documents, no one can say that she was making this up. She was totally credible um, and accurate. So as a result, it feels like maybe it, it's finally the time when Congress is going to actually do something about it. They seem to listen. They seem to take it seriously. And um, I'm hoping you agree that something's going to happen uh, because you wrote in Time Magazine an article about the harms of Facebook's business model. And you said it wasn't, it didn't happen by accident, but rather it was the inevitable result of a dangerous design. So first of all, do you think Congress is going to actually do something? And do you think they have the right design for what they're going to do, the right ideas for what to do? And tell more about what's wrong with the business model. Sure. So first of all, I really hope Congress will do something. I think they want to do something. But the challenge here is that we've allowed our democracy to lose muscle tone. You know, we're, you know, we, we've really been passive for 40 years, letting businesses run themselves and to effectively run the country and to let the wealthy have disproportionate political influence. And as a result, a lot of the things that normally we would count on here are just, they just have, are out of practice. So we, we, you know, we have to hope that they can get it together. So let's talk about Francis Haugen first. So Francis, in my opinion, is extraordinarily courageous. She's authoritative because she, her expertise is in the design of algorithms. And as you correctly point out, Jill, She's brought out thousands of internal research reports from Facebook created by domain experts at the behest of Facebook's management that were then shared with all Facebook employees. That's how she got them. She didn't steal them. She just, they were there for her to look at. And she provided those first to the SEC, then the Wall Street Journal, then 60 Minutes and the Senate. Now she's going off to Brussels to provide to the European Union. And we're not done with the release because on the 25th of the month, there'll be another wave of things that come out. And I, I really admire Frances. I think she is brilliant and she's extraordinarily articulate. She was so convincing. So Congress, I think, sits there and goes, they've been hearing from people like me for five years. But Frances, as you say, she changed the game because she brought out evidence not only of the problems, but explicit evidence of Facebook's management saying, we don't care. We're going to prioritize profits over people every time. And that meant relative to undermining the psychology of teenage girls, human trafficking, uh, COVID disinformation. I mean, it's just, it's, the stuff is so damning. And so I do think the government, by the way, it's not just Congress. We also need the SEC, the Department of Justice, to bring the, the machinery of criminal law to bear. Because what this exposed, you know, human trafficking is a felony. The Texas Attorney General is, has an investigation going that the feds should take over 
of price fixing between Google and Facebook. That is a felony. Aiding and abetting an insurrection is a felony. There is a case in Delaware, six state and union pension plans against Facebook for insider trading. That is a felony, right? And that's based on Cambridge Analytica. And so we do need the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. to weigh in here because there are real things and that will buy us time because let's face it, Congress is not going to be, it's not a hundred yard dash. Congress is a marathon. And so it's going to take a while to get laws through. And we need them in three areas. And I've talked to Frances Haugen about this because, you know, her experience inside Facebook is unbelievably important. But the challenges we face are systemic and we need to think about them beyond Facebook. So we need to think about safety. We need to think about privacy and we need to think about competition. We need New legislation, all three areas. And the great thing is we have models. You know, if you go back to the 1870s, the building trades were unsafe and cities would catch fire and burn to the ground. We created building codes to make cities safe, to make the building trades safe. And they all protested because it was going to ruin their business, but it turned out it didn't. It actually made everything work better because cities didn't burn to the ground. We had a similar thing with food at the turn of the 20th century. Our food supply was unsafe. Upton Sinclair became famous for talking about this. We passed food rules that make it safe. The industry protested it would drive them out of business. It didn't. Then you had the FDA created to protect, um, to protect people from bad drugs. And then you had all the environmental laws because the chemical industry was dumping toxic waste. We've solved problems that look just like this. And tech is in that same place. It creates these incredible products this incredible technology. I mean, there's so many good things about Facebook. If we could just get rid of the bad things, it would be amazing. The problem is the bad things are where the profit comes from. And so Facebook fights that like crazy. And the safety thing is to say, look, we need something like an FDA that looks at every new technology. And I think if you had one that was up and running today, they would look at facial recognition. They would look at deep fakes and say there is no legitimate commercial use for each of those things. And if you want to create a legitimate commercial use, you're going to have to go through a thing like an FDA test with a very specific use Mm -hmm. case, and you're only going to be able to do that. And then they look at things like Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and go, hey, wait a minute, you guys are really dangerous. You need to make the following changes if you want to continue to operate. And we apply that to the whole tech sector. I think that would be a really good idea. So you apply it to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and everything. The second thing you need is privacy, because this country was founded on democracy and self-determination. And the problem is that if you do surveillance capitalism, when you're gathering all this data, you're predicting people's behavior and manipulating, you're taking away their self-determination. And in that process, you've done something that is literally the equivalent of child labor. Because what was child labor? It was about taking children who had no choice, who were controlled by adults, and forcing them to work, taking away their human autonomy. And that's what surveillance capitalism is. I believe it should be banned the same way that child labor was banned. But if you can't get people to do that, at least ban the third-party use of location, health, financial, app usage, and web browsing data. Mm -hmm. Because you have to do that or people have 
They just don't control their lives. And then lastly, you need to have new competition laws that reflect what's changed in the 21st century from previously. You know, right now our antitrust laws are about breaking companies up that were industrial. Well, we need a different way of thinking about it. We need to prevent things from coming together first. Then we need to get rid of anti-competitive behavior. And then when we're done with all that, maybe we'll break some things up. But that's not the top priority. And the thing is, that's what we have to get Congress to do. They get the antitrust part. They absolutely get the antitrust part, particularly in the House of Representatives. Really thoughtful people there. There is a rapidly growing understanding of the safety issue and a lot of confusion about what you do about privacy. And so people like me are working, like Francis, are working to try to help them through all those issues. Well, this is one of the most important things that anyone could do. Um, you didn't compare it to big tobacco, but I've heard that I, as I think a it's a bad comparison. I, I think it's a bad analogy. And the reason I think it's a bad analogy is twofold. Uh, the first is that the issues with tobacco are horrible, and the industry behaved really badly. And addiction is a factor here, but it's not the core factor. And really importantly, when people got addicted to tobacco, 20% of the people died after 30 or 40 years. In this particular case, ballpark 500,000 people died in the last year, right? I mean, it has literally caused life expectancy in the U.S. to decline for the first time since the First World War. And, you know, I'm sorry, but this is qualitatively different. And the tobacco metaphor, as convenient as it is, minimizes the harm. I mean, tobacco never threatened democracy. It really never did. It never undermined a pandemic response. And, you know, this is so much worse. And we just need to be smart. This is like tobacco, the chemical industry, the bad food industry, and the bad uh, building trades all rolled into one. So uh, that takes us back to the business model, which is, as you pointed out, uh, Mark Zuckerberg claims that um, his role is to maximize shareholder value. And you wrote in Time magazine, as with the phrase, I'm just following orders, a single-minded focus on profits and shareholder value can be deployed to justify, to justify all manner of sins. And you noted that Zuckerberg differs from other CEOs in the scope of the harm his company can inflict and the absolute control he enjoys. Uh, and I think that's what you just summarized for us. So with that, I'd like Victor to uh, ask more questions about the business model. When I first came across Facebook, I also thought of the business model that e-cigarette companies use to lure kids in. Um, for example, they created flavors that are fruitier, kids' favorite cereal, and as a result, kids bought the products, gave them profit, and um, got addicted, so they become long-term users. I'm wondering if you think that might be in a, uh, a more, um, I guess, accurate comparison between Facebook um, and how they attract and addict young children to the company. Well, I, so if, if Facebook were the entirety of the problem, that would be a reasonable way of looking at it. But let's think about companies like Google, Microsoft, uh, Epic. So Microsoft sells kids uh, Minecraft, what, third grade? Google sells Chromebooks, third or fourth grade? When do kids start playing Fortnite? Third or fourth grade? When do they start to do with Xbox Live? Same thing. 
All of these things are doing variants of this highly manipulative stuff. And the critical thing, the reason it's different from all past media is that all past media was broadcast. You could only do one message for everybody. And they could do harm, but not like this. Here, everything is tuned to each individual person. So the more data you have, the higher the the accuracy of the tuning. So if you start collecting data on a kid in third grade when they're eight or nine years old, what are you going to know about it by the time they're an adult? So if Microsoft, they start you on Minecraft, they get you on Xbox Live, then they switch you to, to LinkedIn. They got you your whole life. They got everything. What does Google do? Google starts you on Chromebooks and, and the, all the school applications. They're collecting a ton of data on you. Then they start getting to use all the Google products, right? And they ha- then finally they get you onto the Google Apps and Gmail. They have everything. Now, Facebook starts you with Instagram, and then they move you to, to Facebook. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, companies throughout the economy are imitating that model. And you look at this and you go, the reason the addiction thing doesn't work is because addiction isn't the issue with Chromebooks. Those are imposed by schools, right? Addiction isn't the issue with Minecraft. It's a really interesting, fun learning experience. Again, all of these things that are addiction-based, it's so appealing emotionally to think it's an addiction problem, but it's not. What this is much more big brother than that, okay? And, And... you know, my, my thought process to you is, you know, whatever makes you feel motivated to act, I'm okay with. If you actually want to know what's going on, it's way bigger than that. And, and it only worked because Google had this insight in roughly 2000 that computer power was reaching a point where you could process essentially all the data in the world. So that what they should do is collect all the data in the world. And their notion was that they were going to lay claim to data wherever it was. So they would drive a car up and down your street called Google Street View, take a picture of your house, your dog, and your kids, and claim they owned it. They would do it for the same thing from the, from the satellite and take a picture of your house from the top, claim they owned it. Right? There's a story in San Francisco right now where literally 50 to 75 Waymo cars, um, you know, which are self-driving cars, are all going down the same dead-end street and doing three-point turns at the end and coming out of the street. And they're doing this all day long, every day. Well, this is Google taking over a street in San Francisco and claiming, well, they own it, and they're going to use it as a test track for their cars to practice three-point turns. And the people who live on the street have no, no voice in this. They do the same thing with Google Maps. It's like you get in Google Maps and you think it's giving you good advice. No, no, Google is Google's playing God with traffic. They're sitting there and saying, you know, we're going to load balance across the whole system. And today, it's your turn to take the long route. So we're going to tell you today's route to drive is longer than normal. We're taking away from you the right to make your own choice. And we're doing it in the interest of this broader thing that we control. And my response is, are we better off or worse off? It depends on how you feel about efficiency versus self-determination. It is what they're doing is more efficient. But at some point, it runs up against your right to make your own choices. And we have been surrendering ever more important decisions to these companies. And it's getting worse because technologies like artificial intelligence, in their current unregulated, unpatrolled way, are being used to undermine our independence. And we do not have a voice. And I would like to suggest that that's a bad thing. 
Okay? Now, all I want to do is have a conversation about it. You don't have to believe me. I just want you to imagine, for the sake of you know, a thought experiment, what if what I'm saying is true? Wouldn't you like to have the conversation now while there's still time to do something about it? So when I go into Congress, I never focus on Facebook. I focus on the whole problem. And it's really important that we do that because the issue is not technology. The issue is the business model. It's surveillance capitalism. And now car companies are adopting it. Banks are adopting it. Healthcare companies are adopting it. Ticketing companies are adopting it. And that it's not good. It's it's really horrifying, and I and I'm kind of scared and also embarrassed to admit this, but I created Facebook when I was 11, so I can only imagine the amount of data they have on me. But that was under the age limit um, at the time. I, I'm wondering if you think that Facebook, Instagram, and other social media companies should have more of a verifiable and thorough way to ensure its users um, are at a certain age before they use the platform. Well, to be clear, the current law says that you're, for the purposes of internet platforms, you are an adult at age 13. That is an utter nonsense. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, I believe that the correct answer on this is that, you know, there, look, you need to be 18 to drive, you need to be 18 to vote, 21 to drink. I don't know what the right age is for, for smartphones, I don't know what the right age is for internet platforms. But I'm going to guess something between 18 and 21 makes way more sense than 13. That's above my pay grade to figure that out. But the notion that that 10-year-old kids are being given a smartphone is insane. The notion of 13-year-olds being given a smartphone is insane. The idea that, that video game platforms are allowed to do the things with data that they do is insane. And it, it's, it, it has, it, look, if it doesn't stop, we're going to live in a world where systems that are opaque to us over which we have no control are making all the important life decisions for us. You know, it will choose where you go to college. It will choose where you can live. It will choose what kind of things you can buy, what kind of job you can have. And every time you delegate something to AI, you have to remember all these systems have huge bias built into them because there is no incentive to prevent that from happening. And, you know, again, it's a different value system at play. Efficiency competing against democracy and self-determination. And in that battle, efficiency has an evolutionary advantage because democracy and self-determination are inefficient by design. They're designed to operate at human time scales. And so they're designed to be slow and to let people make choices and deliberate. Google so goes, unlike yeah, Victor, we don't have time for that. Unlike Victor... Um, this is where our intergenerational aspects of the show come into play. I'm very new to Facebook and to social media in general. I only created my account uh, because of MSNBC and because of my book. And I use it only to post things about my television appearances, my book appearances or speeches, um, and sometimes articles that I think my followers might be interested in. I don't use it for any personal information, although you've just mentioned no. LinkedIn, and there they have me. It doesn't matter. Every time you use a credit card, every time you use an ATM card, every time you get a bank loan, every time you use your cell phone, every time you use an app, every time you browse on the web, every time you get a medical prescription or a medical test, that data is available to everybody. It doesn't matter what you do on smartphones. 
doesn't matter. Sorry, what you do on internet platforms. It just doesn't matter. I mean, yes, they're going to manipulate you directly, but the notion that somehow by not being on internet platforms that you're safe from this is crazy. Think about this. If you were a police officer at the Capitol on January 6th, or you were a member of Congress, were you safe if you weren't on Facebook? No, because these people have been manipulated and they attacked you, right? I mean, the problem here is this is society-wide now. Okay, Things I understand that. I, I understand that, but I'm still not, I don't understand how they're getting information I'm not hosting. How are they getting that they buy legally? It. They buy it. They're data brokers who'll sell them everything. But why does Facebook want it? If, if they have they, to buy it, they aren't selling what they already own, so it's costing them money. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. So their assumption is eventually you'll be on the system and eventually you'll be able to do something with it. But they, they construct shadow profiles for everybody, even people who don't have accounts. And Google does the same thing. Yes. And the point so, is, it may not be on Facebook where you're affected directly. It'll be somewhere else. But at the end of the day, somebody who has been, you know, somebody who has become manipulated on Facebook can harm you. You know, and you completely oh. have no control over that. Well, I, I certainly get the danger of what happens when you uh, incite a riot. And or how about that, if they have COVID? Danger. How about if somebody yeah. says, "I don't believe in COVID. I don't believe in masks," and they insist on getting in your face when they're symptomatic? Yeah. I mean, well, my point to you here is that this is these things are real. Okay, and all I'm asking is. Let's have the debate. Let's decide what we're going to do. Let's engage with the actual facts. Instead of imagining that it's you're okay if you're not on the platforms, let's face the real fact, which is if you got rid of Facebook and Google tomorrow, surveillance capitalism would still be a problem. It would be a problem okay. in a million other ways. So I want to lead up to what is my final question. But um, So let me ask you a few steps along the way. And that is, for, help me understand the danger that I might pose by being on Facebook. Uh, does it help Facebook stay alive just because I'm registered on their site? It makes them more profitable. And I don't mean me particularly. I mean every person who signs up for Facebook. Does that help them stay alive and enhance the danger they pose? So individually, there's nothing that we do that makes any difference. The question is, if we could get everybody to quit at once, that would have a huge impact. If you could get half the people to quit or a quarter of the people to quit, that would have an impact. But Facebook provides a unique service to advertisers. And, you know, if 100 million people quit today, it wouldn't make any difference. Okay, so that raises another question, which is, um, as I have been debating what I'm going to do about staying on Facebook, um, I've had people respond on Twitter and um, to me saying, well, I'm there because I have foreign members of my family who don't speak yeah, English and they right. provide a translation service. I'm what? on there because it helps me to raise money for charities or because I have a particular interest in knitting yeah. or painting or something. And there are groups that form on Facebook for this. And small businesses say, it's the cheapest, best way that I can reach out and get people to know about my services. So, assuming All of those that these things, things are demonstrably true. true. No, okay, so then what are all the alternative things, platforms? What, there what are can none. they do? 
It's a, that's why we need competition laws, because it is a monopoly. You saw what happened when they went out twice the week that Francis Haugen came out, yes. right? All yeah. of those yeah. companies, all of those activists, all of those people with family members in other parts of the world, they were all lost their access completely. Mm-hmm. No, this is the problem. The, if Facebook didn't have surveillance capitalism, it would be pure and unadulterated joy. Right. It, there are so many good things. And the point here is, I believe that their argument that if you take away surveillance capitalism, they won't survive is nonsense. The same way that when the chemical industry said, if we can't pour mercury into your drinking water, we're going to go broke. The same way the food guys said, I'm sorry, if we have to take the, you know, the weevils out of, out of the meat, we're not going to survive. And I'm going, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, yes, there's a cost to the transition, but people get used to it. They're smart. They're engineers. They're clever. They'll figure it out. And, but at the end of the day, we want to preserve the good wherever we can. And if Facebook doesn't want to provide it, someone else will. But the way things stand today, startups cannot get any traction because Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple block the way. Okay, so here's the sort of bottom line question, I guess, because you've scared me. You've made me aware of risks and dangers, and Francis Haugen certainly did too. So the bottom line is, I'm only an individual. Should I quit Facebook? Will it make any difference if no. I and... No. No, so you can should quit I stay fa- if on it? Make, hang on. If you feel better about quitting, quit. If you feel better about staying on, stay on. But what you should do, everybody needs to use their political power. They need to talk to their members of Congress. They need to talk to their local elected officials. They need to talk to their neighbors. Because we need Congress to act. We need law enforcement to act. You have a lot of leverage in law enforcement. State attorneys general need to bring criminal cases. The Department of Justice and the SEC need to bring criminal cases because these guys have paid no attention to where the legal lines are. And as a result, they've done a lot of things that require an investigation. And those investigations may lead to felony indictments and prosecutions. And we need to go through that exercise. Because if, if your rule is that the law doesn't apply to rich people, that's when we're done. Okay? And we live at a time when a lot of people believe the law doesn't apply to rich people. So this would be an excellent time to prove that they're wrong. And that, I hope Jill, you're right. that's your, that is your area, okay? And, you know, Victor, I don't know what the one is that you're going to focus on, but I would want to see somebody organize the equivalent of March for Our Lives or Moms Demand Action among young people to protect themselves from the mm-hmm. tyranny of, of constant surveillance. I mean, if you've been surveilled since you're nine years old, they should be legally required to erase all of that data and all the models they created mm-hmm. from it. And you have that power. It's just that in the United States, we've, we've forgotten that it's the government is us. And it's up to us to make these changes. And all I'm trying to do is lead by example. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not in a fight against Facebook. I'm in a fight against surveillance capitalism. I'm in a, a fight against this monomaniacal focus on maximizing shareholder value at the expense of everybody else. And, you know, so far it's, you know, until a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't going that well. Now it's doing better. But... You know, if we all pull out this together, it'll yeah. go very quickly because Congress and the legal system want to act, but they aren't feeling enough pressure from people on the outside. Well, you are a man with a mission, 
and you certainly have the background and knowledge to hopefully accomplish your goal of protecting us all from this. And uh, Well, I'd like you to all protect yourselves too, okay? Yes. It'll work a lot better if we're all arm in arm yeah. and doing this together, okay? And, you know, because this is... You know, one of the things that I'm most proud of is being involved in Stop Hate for Profit as an advisor to the NAACP, Color of Change, the Anti-Defamation League, Common Sense Media, and the Free Press, because civil rights organizations have been at the forefront of this fight. I'm, I'm proud to be the partner of Maria Ressa and Carol Cadwallader in the Real Facebook Oversight Board. Maria's just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and she has been at the forefront of this fight. And, you know, it's we all have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And I just want to invite people to join. I hope that they will read your book and that they will contact you through whatever means they can to find out how they can help you to win this. Call your member of Congress. That is all you need to do. If everybody called their member of Congress tonight, we'd get a bill within a couple Mm -hmm. of weeks. I mean, because you literally, if you got 200 million people, yeah. you know, let's just assume 200 million people are watching the show. If, if they all called right now, it would change everything. I'm going to send that. my representative a copy of this podcast. And Thank you. Ask her to please pay who attention. Is your, who is your member of Congress? Jan Chukowski. Okay, so Jan's fabulous. a really good friend. Jan's the perfect person because she's the chairman of the Consumer Protection wow. Subcommittee of House Energy and Commerce. She has more leverage to fix this than almost anybody because both safety and privacy are under her purview. And I she's will send mine terrific. to Brad Schneider in, back in Illinois. Another good one. Yes. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed... I've really enjoyed being on with you guys. This is, you know, this is, you're asking fantastic questions. This is, at some level, the nuances of this are very detailed, but the big level picture of this is not complicated. This is powerful, rich people imposing their will on everybody else. You know, whose side do you want to be on? Them or Well, we have else? a lot more questions, so we're going to have to have you back uh, for it would another be my session of this. Uh, We enjoyed it very much. We hope our audience did too. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good night. Thanks. So, Victor, that was, to me, one of the most interesting episodes we've ever had. I learned so much, and I have a much better picture of what the dangers of Facebook are and what its advantages and good points are. Although I still don't really have a question answered, which is, should I stay or should I go? And um, many people have urged me to go. And Roger was sort of like, well, unless you and millions of others go, it's not going to make any difference. So what do you think? It's really a difficult question. And I, I think for young people especially, it's so hard for us to leave social media. So I think like Roger said, it's probably insignificant if just I or, or my friends and I, we left Facebook. But I think what he said at the end and throughout the conversation um, is extremely important as just our role as people in our democracy, as voters, as active participants in our democracy, I think it's important for all of us to know that we all have a role to play, electing uh, electing people who will reform this issue, contacting our members of Congress. I think all of us have an important role to play. And I think, you know, like Roger said, Facebook and Instagram, I'm still a firm believer that there are 
some benefits to it. I am, you know, right after the George Floyd protests in s- last summer, um, I just remember my generation using social media platforms mm-hmm. as a tool for uh, raising awareness about these subjects. It's really can be used in a good way. And I think as long as we kind of stick true to that belief, knowing that we can use social media in a good way, while also, you know, staying vigilant, making sure that we use our voices to call our elected officials, get them um, to act on this issue. I hope that's enough, but it's also, like he said, it's a really scary um, landscape knowing, you know, like I said in the conversation, I got on when I was 11 and to know that they might have half of my age of information and data is just horrifying. Um, and so I don't I don't know. Like it's it's good, but it, like you said, it's also bad. And so I think that's the question we all have to grapple with. But um, perhaps in the short term, what we can all do is call our elected officials and, and get that get our voices heard. There's one other thing I think we can do, and no, uh, Roger didn't mention this tonight, but it's something you and I have talked about, which is honing your critical thinking skills, mm-hmm. because you can't be manipulated if you understand and if you think through what the information you're getting is. Right. And just like we've said about all the misinformation that Facebook is promulgating, um, or at least allowing to be transmitted to us If you look at it and you go, it's either too good or too bad to be true, it probably is. So start thinking about it. Use your critical thinking skills. And you mentioned the word scary. And I just want to mention one article that I just saw recently, which was about the on-air murder of a CBS um, reporter who was literally executed on air while she was doing a reporting and is being her family is being traumatized by the constant repeating of that video. And it seems to me that that's something that Facebook should absolutely prohibit. Her family is terrified, horrified, distraught every time they see it. And it shouldn't be available. So that's, that's something that seems to me Congress should pass some law right away to stop at least that. Yeah, it's the algorithm that is really feeding into the harms that Facebook is perpetuating for young people, for everyone. Um, and, and I'm just wondering for for you what you think of just the idea of like a media literacy course. There's so much, like you said, misinformation, yeah. disinformation out there on social media. And you know, I was having this conversation with a friend from college. We were just talking about what we see on Instagram and Facebook, and we were talking about the the pictures that they post that a lot of news organizations are starting to post on Instagram. And it's like, they give you the headline, they give you a little paragraph, but that's all the information you have. And so as users, we kind of stop there. Um, Our knowledge doesn't go beyond that. But I'm wondering for you how you approach looking at an article, um, where you go for information, how I guess young people can become more critical um, when they see information on social media platforms. Well, I, I'm, I'm stunned that you would stop at looking at the headline because very often, and just this week I tweeted something about, please don't read just this headline. Mm-hmm. You must mm-hmm. read the article to see what it really is talking about. Yeah. The headline is not even written by the reporter who writes the story. And it could get it completely wrong and be completely misleading. I, because of my job of having to do commentary, I don't even read, not only don't I read just the headline, I don't read just the article. I read it online and I click on all the links within it. So if someone is indicted, I don't read the news reporter's summary of the indictment. 
I read the indictment. I need to know that level of detail so that when I go on air, people can believe that I know what I'm talking about. And I would say the same is true for any issue you care about, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, civil rights, whatever your issue is, you really need to be informed and knowledgeable. And you cannot take news from any social media platform, even from the most reliable mainstream media. You need to read behind the headlines, read the full article and think about it. Learn to do that and we'll be in much better shape. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as I did and that you will all come back to watch us or listen to us, whichever you're looking at, whether it's YouTube or on a podcast, that you'll join us again next week. 